Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Acts chapter 15, Uh, we're going to pick up in verse number 36. We're preaching through a series of messages through the book of Acts. Uh, We started in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way through the the book of Acts. And as we're looking at this wonderful book, I've kind of outlined the theme or gave the theme this title or the theme of the the whole book. I've said that it's living with biblical clarity. That's our desire, is that we be what I've termed I didn't really term it, uh, to be honest with you. I was called this many years ago before I got here. Uh, Brother Gerald Harris said, Shane, the only thing I know to call you is a strict biblicist. And uh, I'll take that. That's what I'd love to be known for, that he just believed the Bible. And I want to live my life with biblical clarity. And uh, I'm inviting you to come along with me. So the, looking at this, this book, the book of Acts, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here in relationship to living our lives with biblical clarity. Today, we're going to be looking at a very unusual passage of Scripture because it comes on the heels of probably one of the most unifying events in church history. Uh, when you look at the first century church and you see that their very first council, the first time the whole church got together over a challenge, over a conflict, over a problem, a doctrinal issue that was happening was salvation. And whether it's salvation by faith or whether it's salvation by works. And they came to the conclusion of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that when you get saved, you were saved by Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross... And the way that you're saved is with the activity of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God through faith alone, period. You're not saved any other way. You can't add to it. And so the church agreed upon that, wrote this big letter to all the churches there, uh, the Galatian churches to encourage them. Paul and Barnabas were elected to go back and to go back to those churches and read those letters, and they were in the process of doing so. And uh, they desired to hit every one of the churches that they started. And we see that this is just a great unifying factor of the church. And then we hit verse 36. And when we hit verse 36, something different happens. We move from the greatest unifying factor in the church to one of the greatest disputes that we find uh, in the New Testament church between two brothers and sisters. Now, mindful everybody that exists today uh, has the capability of being an encourager or being someone that is known as a complainer. It reminds me of a story of a woman who went to her hair salon one day to get her stylist to fix her hair because she was going to Rome on a, on a big trip, her and her husband. And the stylist that she went to was always known as a complainer. She complained about everything. And so she sat in the chair and she said, fix my hair up real nice if you don't mind because I'm leaving this afternoon going to Rome. And the stylist said, Rome? Why in the world are you going to the dirtiest city in the world? Why would you want to go to Rome? How are you getting there? And the lady sitting in the chair says, well, I'm flying Continental Airlines. 
She said, Continental Airlines, that's the worst airline you could ever fly on. They got the ugliest hostess you've ever seen in your life. They're mean. They're ugly. Where are you staying? And the lady in the chair says, well, I'm staying at the villas. The stylist said, the villas? Oh, that's the awfulest place you can stay. They're so overrated. It's way too expensive. I wouldn't stay there. What are you going to see when you're in Rome? And the lady said, well, I, I thought we would we'd go see the Pope. She said, what? Are you kidding me? There's no way you could see the Pope. You can't even see him from a long distance. He says, nobody will be able to get around the Pope. You won't be able to get within a mile of him. And uh, so he, she said, just please fix my hair. And so the, fixed her hair and off she went. Four weeks passed. She's back off the trip. She goes back to her stylist to try to teach her a lesson, hoping to break her of her bad habits. Uh, she sits down in the chair and the stylist uh, looks at her and says, so you've been to Rome. And uh, the lady in the chair says, yes, I, 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 I've been to Rome. And the stylist says, I bet the flight was terrible, wasn't it? And the customer said, no, no, actually the flight was great. So they actually had overbooked the flight. And because they had overbooked us, we got to, see, to sit in first class. They fed us steak and lobster. So it was just a, this is the most best flight I've, I've ever had in my life. She says, oh, is that right? She says, well, let me tell you, let me ask you this. What about them villas? I bet them villas were awful, weren't they? She said, well, you know what, that's funny you should ask. Said the, we got there to the villas, and the villas were doing a $5 million res, uh, renovation. And they were also overbooked, and that forced us to stay in the owner of the villa's personal villa. We were treated like kings. Man, we got everything our hearts desired. She stuck her hands in her pocket, and the stylist didn't. Says, well, what about the Pope? I bet you didn't get to see the Pope, did you? And the customer said, well, that's a funny story. He said, we took our tour of the Vatican, and one of the guards actually tapped us on the shoulder and said, hey, look, the Pope often entertains a few people every now and then. Would you like a personal visit for the Pope? Uh, to which we said, absolutely. And so the stylist in shock looked and said, I can't believe that. Y'all got to see the Pope? She said, we sure did. Well, what did he say, the stylist asked. The customer uh, looked up at the stylist and said, the, she said the Pope took one look at us and said, that's the worst hairdo I've ever seen. Who fixes your hair? <laughs> you know, we, we can either be encouragers or we can be complainers. And we see here in this text, we see just those two things. And not that Paul was complaining per se for complaining's sake. I think Paul had, he really had a, a good reason to complain. But he complained nonetheless. And because of his complaint, we're going to look and see in this text, there was a major disruption in these two brothers. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 36 of Acts chapter 15. The Bible says, Then, uh, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Now, let us go back to visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, remember, they've got in their hands the uh, Jerusalem Council's decision, and this is a great source of encouragement and unity among the churches. Look at what the Bible says in verse 37. Now, Barnabas was determined. If you have your pens, I would underline the word determined. Barnabas was determined to take with him John Mark. Now, I want you to remember, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. Uh, and he wants John Mark to go so bad that he's determined that he's going to go. Basically, what we're seeing in this text is Barnabas is not leaving without his cousin, John Mark. Period. Verse 38. But, 
Paul insisted. I would underline that word insisted. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Verse 39. Then the contention became, here's what I would underline, so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Now let me say something parenthetically right here about verse 40. Verse 40 says that uh, the brethren commended them to move forward. What we're seeing in the text is simply this, that they took this thing also before the church, and the church says this is a good thing. Paul and Barnabas should go to Cyprus, and it is good for uh, Silas and Paul uh, to, to go to Sicilia and also into Syria and strengthen the churches in that respect. And that's exactly what we see in verse number 41. The Bible says, and they went through Syria and Sicilia, uh, strengthening those churches. So they departed because the tension was so great. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, we, we see that there was a major conflict. I wish that this was the only conflict that we see in Scripture, but I I think it's a source of encouragement to the church from this perspective. Since the very first century church, there's been conflict in churches all this time. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes it. In fact, preachers, and I'm one of them today, they don't like to preach through this. This is one of these passages of scriptures I just wish I could skip by. Let's just go straight into verse number uh, 1 of chapter 16. But it's here, and it's here for a reason. And the reason why it's here, I believe, is God's wanting to show us some lessons here that I'll get to here in just a few moments. There's some lessons to be learned in this scenario that we can take away and will help us in any disputes or misunderstandings or contentions that we have in our fellowship. No church fellowship is immune from contentions, especially when you have teams. And we are a team-based church. And our theme that we have here at Maysville, loving God, loving others, and serving the world, and we do that together as a a church family, and we do that in segments or church family teams where we go and we do that uh, uh, loving God, loving others, and serving the world. Our purpose statement intentionally, there is bound to be seasons where there's contention that arises. When you look at the mission field, the number one cause of mission of missionaries coming back home is contentions. As Southern Baptists, we have one of the greatest uh, programs that exist in our world today in getting missionaries to and from the field. Unfortunately, the number one reason why people come off the field is because of contention. They cannot, missionaries who cannot, get along. You say, well, why, we shouldn't just do this team thing. Just, just send them out individually and not do, not do the teams. That's not biblical either. When you look at the New Testament, you see at least 55 men and 17 women who are associated with Paul in his missionary journeys. Team ministries are vitally important. You can't be effective or can you be efficient without team ministries. We must have a team here at Maysville Baptist Church in order for us to move in the direction we're called to move in. Without these team ministries, the ministry would come to a screeching halt. So team, uh, team ministries is vitally important in relationship to getting the gospel out 
into the community and all over the world. But it is the same coin when you flip it on the other side. Another face to that coin is that there will be contentions at some time over the course of this season. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, there are three things that are worth noting in relationship to the text itself. And then there are five lessons that I want to go through very quickly. I'll move very fast through the outline, but spend a little bit more time on the lessons themselves. So the first thing I want you to see is in verse number 36. Verse 36 gives us the context of what this passage of Scripture is talking about. Look at verse 36 again. Then after some days, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul uh, said to Barnabas, let us go now back to visit our brethren in the city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. We find here in this passage of Scripture the context that they find themselves in. They have just come off the Jerusalem Council. They are reading uh, uh, to these churches already what the council has decided by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone is the only way of salvation. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. You just have to have a changed life through Jesus Christ. And what a great unifying factor that is. And we see that after these days, some days of these things, Paul said to Barnabas, I got an idea. Let's go down and check on the churches and let's just encourage them. So we find here in this text what they're wanting to do is go back to Cyprus, Pamphylia, and Galatia and encourage these churches. Paul thinks that it's a wise thing to do. Barnabas thinks it's a wise thing to do. They want to do this, but we see that something happens that disrupts the unity. Then we find this in verses 37 and 38, and I've entitled this number two. The second thing is the clash. Not only do you have the context, they just come off this unifying factor, then you have number two, the clash. Verse 37 and 38. They agree on the trip, but they clash over the travel companions. They agree to the trip, but they clash over the travel companions. So who was John Mark? And why was he causing these long-term gospel partners to lock horns so furiously? You might recall John Mark actually accompanied Paul and Barnabas in the early stages of his first missionary journey. We find this in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, around verse number 5, the Bible tells us that John and Paul and Barnabas uh, were there together, and John Mark was their helper. But if we read a little further in Acts chapter 13, we see that John Mark the helper becomes John Mark the deserter. And we see that Luke records for us here in this passage of Scripture and in Acts chapter 13, this progression of events that happen in John Mark's life where he gets scared, he's intimidated. They have to go uh, to Perga and Pamphylia. And in order to get there, they got to go through this narrow channel that is known to be the a bad place in town. Uh, I mean, there are crooks, there are criminals, people have died, they've been murdered trying to get on this journey from here to there. And John Mark gets a little bit scared and he says, I just don't think I can do it. I want to go back home to Jerusalem. 
and he deserts them. Paul takes this very seriously. Paul's heart's desire is the success of the mission. He wants the mission of God to be completed. He knew that that commission was just exactly what it means. It was a partnership with God for the mission, if you would, of getting the gospel to the whole world so that everyone that hears it has an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. So John Mark had let them down. And, and Paul was hurt by this. So much that he said, he ain't never going with us again. But we find now, at this particular juncture, we see that uh, Barnabas sees John Mark's growth and he wants to help. So on the one hand, you have Barnabas who wants to give him a second chance. And this really fits with Barnabas' overall character, doesn't it? Think about Barnabas. Remember what his nickname was. He was the son of encouragement. And if you're an encourager and you see somebody that's has taken a fall, someone that's hurt, someone that maybe is not as spiritually mature as they used to be, but they have matured and grown up a little bit, you want to try to give them a second chance. This is Barnabas. Barnabas was a man of another chance. Isn't that just like God? God is a God of another chance. Thank God that he always gives another chance. We find that he gave Saul another chance. In fact, when we look at and think about Barnabas' history, Saul, when he first came to Jerusalem after he was saved, all the believers, remember, they were reluctant. They didn't want Paul in their presence. They would say, man, Paul, ain't no way I want him here. That joker's crazy. He, he, he may be lying to us for all we know. He may come in here and draw his sword and cut all of our throats. There's no way we want uh, Paul to come into this place. That's what the disciples were saying. Who was the only one that came to Paul's defense? Barnabas. Barnabas was the only one that would come to Paul's defense and say, Look, guys, he really truly is saved. And I'll tell you how I know he's saved. Look at his life. He's not the same man he used to be. And uh, I, I can almost hear the disciples looking at Barnabas and going, Man, you sure do have a lot of faith. Because just last week, that man was killing uh, Christians. He was dragging them out by the hair of the heads in these New Testament churches and these churches. We just don't understand how you can see this guy as truly being saved. There hadn't been enough time in his life to look and see that he's matured. Barnabas says, look, I know that he's changed. Give him a chance. So Paul would not even been able to have the relationship with the disciples that he had had it not been for Barnabas. But on the other hand, when you have Paul who wants to who does not want to take chances, where Barnabas sees the incur to encourage John Mark, Paul again wants to protect the mission. Paul simply says, Look, Barnabas, we need to be able to trust the whole team. We can't trust John Mark. You know how dangerous this can be. You know uh, what kind of stamina is required in order to get through uh, Pamphylia. You know on the way there's going to be death threats. You know that they're going to try to kill us. You know that we're going to have our lives threatened. Can we trust John Mark to be there? Can we trust him when we get through the difficult times? If the past repeats itself, no. We cannot trust John Mark. We must not compromise the mission. And so we find that here is where the struggle happens and they lock horns and they have this tremendous clash. And then in verses 39 through 41, you see the conclusion. The conclusion is simply this, verse 39, then the contention became so 
sharp. I had you underline that word so sharp. That word so sharp uh, has the idea uh, to deal in the Greek with anger, irritation, exasperation. Uh, no matter which way you slice this incident, it's not pleasant. This is not just a simple disagreement. I disagree with you, you disagree with me. Let's just go our separate ways. This is such a heated, contentious atmosphere that they are close to blows with one another. They want to push each other around, and they want to start a fight for Jesus' sake. Reminds me of when I was in the Dominican Republic, which our team just got back. So grateful our team got back from Dominican Republic. I was with our missionaries in Dominican Republic one time. We were in front of this Catholic church. They had this nice little sitting area, and we were out sharing the gospel. I was interacting with this guy that spoke English, and he obviously was a, a, a lost man. He, didn't, he was not a believer, and uh, he wanted this thing to get hot. And the louder he got, the louder I got. And I really, he started yelling at me, and I was trying to stay calm and share the gospel with him. And I really, in my heart, I thought, I'm about to get a black eye for Jesus. This, I'm about to experience persecution right here in front of this Catholic church. And about that time, uh, the missionary stepped in between us and uh, started uh, sharing and told me to get on the bus and to uh, hush my mouth and uh, just to relax and everything's going to be fine. It, it, but I, the contention was so great. Uh, I could feel like, I just felt like, man, I just want, I want this guy to be saved. And my passion was just so over the top that I let my anger get in, in the way. And so we find here the conclusion seems to be much of the same. This, this uh, irritation that they had, no matter what they were saying, they just could not get along. And it reminds us that Paul and Barnabas were human beings. Because if I was to take a survey day, and, and I don't want to, please don't raise your hand, but if I was to ask who in here uh, uh, has never in their life gotten angry, well, I mean, well, nobody, everybody would raise their hand. Uh, if we didn't, our spouses would lift our hand up for us. Uh, because we do, we, we struggle with that in this world that we live today. And so we find that they felt this anger too. They felt this irritation. They felt this frustration. And they're born again children of God. And so here are these two battle-hardened gospel workers and they cannot reach a compromise in relationship on whether or not to take another Christian. And there's this struggle that happens. And the conclusion is just simply this. They split ways. Barnabas and John Mark visit the new churches in the southwest while Paul turns to Silas and they go visit the northwest churches. And so they, they split and they, they, go, they go different ways. Uh, all because they could not get along. So the question that we want to wrestle with in the remainder time that I have is what can we learn from this? What applications can we apply in our lives that will be an encouragement to us to help us move forward in, in our relationship as we work together in the church. Well, I think there's five of them, and I give them to you very quickly this morning. First of all, here's the first lesson we learn. We need to learn the lesson that we should expect clashes in ministry. Expect clashes in ministry. As long as you've got people, you're going to have problems. But those problems do not negate the fact that something is wrong. You're going to have clashes when it comes to ministry. I'll never forget many years ago, I went on a mission trip to Africa. And as I was uh, there uh, in Africa, I, I can remember uh, being asked by the mission team to bring a Bible study to the missionaries only, just the missionaries. And the topic that I was asked to speak on was conflict resolution. 
Why? Why did they want me to come all the way from America, to come all the way to the church in Africa, and to talk to the missionaries about conflict resolution? That was the number one thing they wanted to know. That was the number one thing they wanted to hear. That was the number one thing they wanted a pastor to expound upon, conflict resolution. Why? Because there was tremendous conflict in the camp. So I want you to get the picture here. Here's a camp in Africa. They've got about uh, four couples, missionaries, that are living together, four Christian couples living, Southern Baptist couples, enjoying uh, ministering together, loving the people that they're ministering to, but behind the scenes, they can't get along with each other. And they need somebody to come alongside and help them with this conflict that they're having in the congregation or in in their ministry team. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the same is true here. We should expect clashes in ministry. It doesn't mean something's wrong with our congregation. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong in your department. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Uh, What it means is that there are conflicts that happen in regards to ministry. And in order for us to move forward, we have got to check ourselves and make sure that we're right with the Lord and we're right with each other. One of the things that's missing today in our culture is civility. We are suffering from a lack of civility. It is impossible to disagree with someone in our culture today and them not get so irritated and mad at you that they hurt you or they want to hurt you or they desire to hurt you. I've never before seen a culture that has decayed in such a rapid space or place as I had the United States of America. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is the unifying factor. And it's not a sin to disagree with someone. What is a sin is to act upon that disagreement in the form of bitterness and hate and try to hurt someone because they don't agree with you. We need civility back in the United States again. And we see here in this this passage of Scripture, when it comes to these clashes that we expect to happen in ministry, we also expect for civility to rule in the Word of God. Hey. Number two, not only do you, should you expect clashes in ministry, but there's a second lesson that I think we need to learn here in the text. And that second lesson is this. Spiritual maturity does not erase personality differences. Oh, hear me, again, hear me out because there's a lot of personalities in our congregation. A lot of personality. Thank God there's a lot of personalities. I'd hate for all of you to have the same personality that I have. It would be so boring. Thank God for the personality that God gave you. Unfortunately, we're often naive to think that we're all just spiritually mature. Uh, We would never clash with one another. I agree that generally our clashes should be less frequent and less severe in proportion to our spiritual maturity, but... Until we're all perfectly sanctified before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we're ultimately in heaven, I'm afraid that we are going to have conflict here and the conflict will revolve a lot of times around our personalities. Uh, We will have conflict uh, with one another. My pastor used to say this and uh, I loved it. It's true. It's a little ditty that says something like this. To dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. How true is that? How true is the fact that we struggle in relationships to our personality? I want you to note three things about these men in particular in their personalities. Watch this. This is amazing to me. Number one, the personality clashes can arise between two people who share the same basic theology. These two men shared the same basic theology. They just came back from the Jerusalem council with a letter in their hand. 
that they agreed to that its salvation is by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. They agree on this theology. Even John Mark, they all agree. But they clash over their personalities. Number two, personality clashes can arise between two people who are godly and committed to the same cause for Christ. Let me say it again. Personality clashes can arise between two people who are godly and committed to the same cause of Christ. Paul and Barnabas were not new believers. And they were faithful men of God. Again, they have just come from Jerusalem Council. Both have walked with God for years by this time. And they're both fully committed to do God's work and to do God's will. No matter the cost, they had risked their life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet they still clashed. Why? Well, because personality clashes can arise between two godly people. Number three, personality clashes can arise between people who have served together for years in the cause of Christ. I have known individuals like Paul and Barnabas who have served for years and years and years and years, and then yet, at the end of their ministry, something happened. And they go their separate ways. Probably one of the hardest things to, uh, to, to think about uh, in relationship to this is when you've got two men of God that you were raised with that love God with all their heart. And yet something happens and they cannot get along with each other. And these are two men that are godly men. Here's Paul and Barnabas, two godly men who suffered because they could not get along with their personalities. And then number three, here's the third lesson we can learn from this text. A person's greatest strengths are often in the area of their greatest weakness. When you look at this passage of Scripture, you can't help but think about Paul's strength. When you see the text and you think about what has happened there in Paul's life and in Paul's relationship with God and with Paul's relationship with Barnabas and John Mark and all these things, you see Paul's greatest strength was his resolute commitment to follow Christ no matter what the cost. I'm telling you, when you look at Paul's convictions and you see that his determination to get the gospel out and him taking the commission that God has given to him and say, I want to be part of this commission, I am co-missioning with God. I'm ready to go. It didn't matter what you could do to Paul. You could throw him in prison. You could hit him with rocks. Whatever. You could not stop him proclaiming the word of God. As a matter of fact, here he is now in this text. He says, let's go back. Let's go back. Do you remember when I almost got beat to death with rocks? Do you remember? Let's go back and do that again. You could not stop Paul. His strength was incredible. But Paul's weakness was his inability to accept and work with weaker brothers and sisters in Jesus like John Mark. John Mark just wasn't there yet. He had not matured yet. But there has now been some time that has passed in this first missionary journey where John Mark is obviously showing signs of spiritual maturity and now he's ready to go. Barnabas sees that and Barnabas says, let's take him. And Paul says, no, we're not going to take him because I'm more concerned with the mission than I am the man. And that could be a weakness. And later we find in Scripture, in, in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24, and also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we'll look at that here in the, at the end, we find that Paul realizes his weakness and he tries to get that thing right. But then you can't ignore Barnabas' greatest strength. We know he was an encourager. 
his ability to encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. He was a champion for the outsider. If you were the underdog, he was for you. He pulled for Auburn every Saturday. <laughs> Just making sure y'all were still with me. And Florida, too. He pulled for them, too. But Barnabas' greatest weakness was this. Barnabas had the, uh, the possibility of erring on the side of weakness when it comes to taking a stand. He was so gracious and so encouraging that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, that Barnabas was in the wrong when he was siding, if you would, with the Judaizers and not eating with Gentile Christians. Paul rebukes him in Galatians and says, Look, man, I know you want to be grace-filled to those Judaizers. I know you want to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But you can't walk them into heaven holding their hand. You've got to take a stand. And you are hurting the church of Jesus Christ by not eating and having fellowship with the Gentile Christians. They're saved too. And so Barnabas had this weakness, if you would, of letting this weakness overtake him and moving over into the realm of being so gracious that he tolerated sin. That's, that's not right either. So the lesson is, know yourself. Know what your weakness is. Because your greatest strength could be your greatest weakness. And we know that in regards to, to these two men, a man who is strong in discernment can easily become judgmental. That's Paul. And a man who is strong in accepting others can easily err by tolerating serious sin or doctrinal error. That's Barnabas. And so we walk away from these two men in simply knowing this, that a person's greatest strength are often in the area of his greatest weakness. And then number four, here's the fourth lesson we learn. God uses imperfect instruments in his service. God uses imperfect instruments in his service. You, can, you cannot find two more godly men, two, two men that are more dedicated to the service of Jesus Christ than Paul and Barnabas. And yet here they are, clashing with one another. But then again, watch this. When you look back over the scriptures, do you not find this to be a common theme? Think about it for a minute. Noah. Noah, the Bible says, was the most righteous man on earth. And yet, after God's deliverance through the flood, he got drunk and shamefully exposed himself to his son. Think about this one, Job. Job was the most righteous man in his day, and yet he wrongfully contended with God for afflicting him. David. David was a man after God's own heart, yet he fell into a terrible sin. As Solomon lamented, he says, There is no man who does not sin. And while there is a proper place for trust in the leadership that God puts over us, there is an importanter trust that elevates them too high. If we are trusting in men rather than in the Lord himself, we will be shaken when those men let us down. And that's exactly what we see here in the text. The Bible is referring to this situation to let us know don't put your faith in Paul. Don't put your faith in Barnabas. Don't put your faith in John Mark. Don't put your faith in Shane. Don't put your faith in David. Don't put your faith in Chris or any man. Put your faith in Jesus. He will not let you down. But all the rest of these men, they're going to let you down. They're going to mess up. And so we see that God uses imperfect instruments, though, in his service. 
And then the fifth thing and final thing is my time is just about gone. Christian unity is a shared life and a shared light. It's a shared life and a shared light. When the brothers and sisters in verse number 40 came together and considered what was happening here in the text, remember what they did. The Bible tells us that they commended them. They put their stamp of approval, if you would. They said, this is a good thing that they split up. Because by splitting up and going in these different directions, God is going to use them for twice as much ministry. They shared the same light, Jesus Christ. They shared the same life, a Christian life. And they departed from one another, even though it was, it was a, almost a fist fight. They departed one another to keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we were to stop right there and uh, say, man, that, that, that is a tough... That's a tough story. It's tough from the perspective that here are these two men uh, with John Mark as a third that struggled. It's also tough in response uh, to the fact that did they ever get right with each other? So we can't leave this passage of Scripture and just go on to chapter 16 in verse 1 in learning these lessons without seeing the complete outcome of what happened here. And in order to see the complete outcome of what happened here, we've got to go to 2 Timothy chapter number 4. So if you have your Bibles, will you find 2 Timothy chapter number 4? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing to Timothy. And as a matter of fact, when we get to chapter 16, verse 1, this is where Paul picks up Timothy, actually. Paul's going to pick up Timothy. So Timothy comes on the scene after this fight has happened between Barnabas and Paul. And in 2 Timothy, chapter number 4, here we find uh, is the end of of Paul, uh, his ministry. He's getting older. Things are happening in his life in chapter 4. But I want you to notice what he says uh, in verse uh, number 9 through 16. He tells Timothy, he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly. So he says, I want you to come. I want you to come really fast. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed from Thessalonica. Uh, Caesareans of Galatia, uh, Titus for Demetia. So we find here in the text, Paul's heart is already heavy because now, just like John Mark, there's people that are leaving him. He says in verse number 11, only Luke is with me. And then look what he says next. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me in the ministry. So Paul is desiring for Timothy to come. He wants him to bring a coat. He wants him to bring some, script, some scriptures with him, bring me some parchments, bring me some the Word of God. And he says, oh yeah, I want you to come quickly. But I want you to go by and stop. I don't care where he's at, stop and get him. Pick up John Mark and bring him to me. There came a time in Paul's life where he said, I need to get right. I'm wrong. I understand that my strength to accomplish the mission cannot overrule my passion for men. I've got to be more passionate 
and graceful. So bring John Mark with me because you have to go to Philemon to hear Paul say this. Paul says, he's my fellow laborer. He's helping me. We're working together. So in Acts chapter 15, he says we're, we're not on the same page. But by the time you get to Titus and Philemon, he's a fellow laborer. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Jesus happened. Jesus got in the mix. And anytime Jesus gets in the mix, you can't be at odds with another brother or sister. You've got to get right. Let me give you two stories and I'm done. I'll try to hurry since I only have five minutes. I've only pastored two churches in Georgia. This great church and Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Some of you watching Mount Pleasant, I love you guys. You know I love you. I praise God for you. Love you with all my heart. Mount Pleasant started in 1874. Uh, I was its 13th pastor. It's from 1874, I was pastor number 13. It's amazing. By that time, churches have had some 20 or more. I hadn't figured it up. I hadn't done a comparison between how many you guys had since then uh, when I was there. But anyways, that's beside the point. I don't even know what number I am here, but that does not matter. But what matters is they cared a great deal about their pastors, and they desperately didn't want them to leave, and they wanted to retain them and hold on to them for as long as they possibly could. But something happened in the 80s, Chris, that really was hard for the church. The church split. And just a few miles up the road, they started another church. You had Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, and then you had a church called Rootville Road Baptist Church. And uh, it was hard. It was a hard time because you had these two churches, and it was like families. It's like a divorce that happened. It was hard on the church. But sometime later, some years later, the pastor at uh, Rootville Road Baptist Church and the pastor at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church came together and said, look, we weren't a part of the problem, but we need to be a part of the solution. And we're working together. And there was a forgiveness that was taking place there, so much so that these two churches became sister churches together. And what was a church split became a church unity. And there were times when, when we needed help, we would call that church and say, hey, could you help us? We, we need some help. And they'd send some children's workers down, and they would take care of our folks. And when they needed help, they'd call us and say, hey, could you help us? And we would send, and it was like a family reunion. I mean, people coming together, um, loving each other, all for the common goal of winning people to Jesus Christ and seeing people saved. The bottom line is simply this. Even in church life, you couldn't have those two churches that had split without coming together in reconciliation. And they come together and their force was stronger than it was when they were apart. It's a lot like being an individual. Let me give you my story. Uh, when I was born, February 7, 1974, uh, my dad, Robbie Robertson, signed his name on my birth certificate. And I was a Robertson at that moment in time. For 23 years of my life, I... I uh, resigned to that, to, to resigned to the fact, and still today, I'm a Robertson to this day. But when I was 23 years old, I found out that Robbie, my man who raised me and gave me uh, great, great 
lessons in how to be a man. I am the man I am today because of Robbie Robertson teaching me. And I am grateful for the lessons he taught me. I was saved as he raised me when I was 14 years old. Thank God for Robbie. But when I was 23 years old, I found out that he was not my biological father. I'd asked questions my whole life. I mean, I, what's wrong with me? Why don't I look like Dad? I got a brother that's four years younger. We're as different as daylight and dark. I mean, you talk about there can't be two more different people than me and my brother. We share the same mother. We didn't have the same father. We were two firstborns living in the same house. A lot of contention, a lot of fighting, a lot of difficulties, him being four years younger than I was. So when I found out, when my mother decided to tell me, I had just moved to Georgia. I'd been here three months, and uh, I was serving as a youth pastor. And, man, that rocked my world. It shattered me, Connor. I'm just telling you, man, it ruined me. When, when my mother shared with me that Robbie's not your biological father, when she told me that, all I could think about was 23 years of lies. And at that moment right there, I got so mad at my Christian mother my Christian father, my Christian aunts and uncles, my Christian grandparents. I was so angry with them. I quit ministry. I just moved to Georgia and I said, I'm out of here. I'll go dig ditches. I mean, seriously, I'm telling you, I'd do whatever. I just didn't want to have to stand in front of folks like you and be a hypocrite because I hated them. You understand what I'm saying? I hated them. I went to my pastor and I said, I'm done. I'm going to turn in my resignation. And I said, I've got to quit. I'm sorry. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And Doug knew one of the greatest mentor a young man could ever have in his life, and I had him. He looked at me and he said, I don't think I'm ready to take your resignation yet. I said, well, I'm done. He said, I don't think you are. He said, I think you're hurt. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a, some time off. I'm going to give you some paid time off. And I'm not going to tell you how much time I'm going to give you. You've got from now until Jesus comes back. But you ain't quitting. You go figure out what God wants you to do. You're a God-called man. I know he's not calling you to quit. Good luck. I love you. <laughs> I walked out of there. I was bum-fuzzled. I'm like, I can't even quit. Does he not understand I don't want to do this? And so I got in the car. Now, this is, this is back in 1997, 98, during that season, where WWJD was a big deal. You know, everybody had their bracelet, WWJD. What would Jesus do? So I got in the car, and I began to think, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? What would he do? And I didn't like the answer I got. I didn't. Have you ever been mad and just want to be mad? You ever been mad and just want to stay mad? I mean, look, I've got a reason. I've been lied to for 23 years. I yeah, I'm not, we're not going to Christmas. We're not going to Easter. We're not going to Thanksgiving. We're done. I'm cutting them off. We're finished. Shane, if you're truly a God-called man, what would Jesus do? Well, I knew what Jesus would do. He'd forgive. He would forgive them. That's an act on my part. I forgive you. But then he would deal with himself in relationship to who he is. Now, he's holy. He's holy, but I'm not. I'm imperfect. I know that I have sinned. I have thought some things. I have said some things. I've even done some things that I'm ashamed of. I need to get right. I asked God to forgive me, and then I had to do the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and that's go to each one of my family members 
and ask them to forgive me for being so rude and ugly. It was a very difficult thing. But by God's grace, I was able to do it. And by God's sweet, precious grace, the relationships in my life became stronger. I'll never forget, I had taken care of everybody except for my biological father. And he wanted to meet me. I struggled because I already said that I did never, I never wanted to see him. But what would Jesus do? Well, not only would he see him, he would die for him. Well, you forget that, Lord. I am not going to die for the man. I'm not doing it. But I will forgive him. And so I remember when the phone call came in, I was back at the church by this time. I, I uh, got installed back into ministry. We were on our way preparing to take a mission trip to Mexico when the phone call came in. And uh, Miriam said, he's here. You need to come home. And I got in the car, and I remember driving home. And you know, they always say that family comes in through the garage door. Well, I was so messed up, I couldn't even go into the garage. I, I went around to the front door. I mean, I thought I was a stranger walking to my own house. And I, I can remember opening the screen door and turning the knob and pushing open the front door. And there in front of me stood my biological father. And if, you ever, if you've ever seen him, you say, I look just like him. I mean, just like him. And he throws himself on me and puts his head on my shoulder and he says, Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. I've received Christ as my Savior. I'm a Christian. I can't live like this anymore. Will you forgive me? And in my heart, I'm like, no, wait a minute. You can't do this. It's my turn. I've I, I got to ask forgiveness. You can't be asking forgiveness. I've got to be asking. And little did I know, God was working on both ends. I said, yes, I do forgive you. Will you forgive me for hating you? And God restored a relationship that even yesterday at the graduation of my son, high school graduation, I can't tell you what happened in my heart when I looked up and saw my dad, Mark Osborne, my biological father, coming down. And he came and he hugged me. And he said, I love you. I'm so proud of Garrett. And he loved on my son. I, I wonder, I wonder if that's the way John Mark felt. The first time he saw Paul when their relationship was restored again. Paul said, he's my fellow servant. So here's the lesson. Overarching theme of this lesson is just simply this. You can't be right this way with God and be wrong with somebody this way. You're going to be miserable. You, uh, you can, don't get me wrong, you can do it, but you'll be miserable. I mean, you will be miserable. In fact, some of you here today that are here today, first service, second service, third, third service, this is one of the reasons why you, you're so depressed and are hurting so bad in your walk with Jesus. You're miserable, and it revolves around what would Jesus do. So but you don't know the hurt and the pain. You're right. I don't know your hurt and pain. I don't know the size of your scar, but I know the size of my scar. And I know the victory that comes from surrendering to God. And, and, and by the way, I just want to say this. Whatever hurt you're going through pales in comparison to the hurt that Jesus suffered on Calvary for you. And so I challenge you today to exercise forgiveness. Paul did it. Barnabas did it. John Mark did it. 
and the ministry continued for the glory of God. Could we bow for prayer? Now, now that we are ending with the thought of forgiving others as Jesus has forgiven us, uh, I want you to think about it just for a minute. Is there anybody in your life that you need to ask forgiveness from? It's going to be the hardest thing you're going to ever do in your life. Now, I'm not telling you to do it. I'm just, I'm just asking you, friend, what would Jesus do? Um, I, that's what I'm asking you to wrestle with. What would Jesus do? Maybe you can't get the victory over this because you've never gotten victory with Jesus. You've never got right with him first. So maybe you're here and you need to get right with the Lord from your heart to God's heart. If you want to get right with the Lord, would you say something like this? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask Heavenly Father today that you'd forgive me of my sin. I repent today, and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help me to get victory over the bitterness and anger in my life. Help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look right up this way. Maybe you're here today, and, and maybe the best of your ability, you prayed that. I want to welcome you to the family of God. I, I want to encourage you uh, to grow in your faith. I want to help you grow in your faith. If you prayed to receive Christ today, as you exit through these doors this morning, right there on the left, we've got a connection room that we have for you. We'd love for you to step in there. We've got some material we want to give you just to say, Welcome to the family of God to help you to grow. Pastor Chris will be in there. He'll be glad to say some words to you and welcome you. Maybe you're here today and maybe you'd like to join our church. Uh, maybe you're praying about that. I'd love to pray for you. If you, you're praying about joining this fellowship, we had one join last hour. Praise the Lord. We're so excited about that. But maybe that's you today. We want to invite you to come. Or maybe you're here today and maybe you just need to spend some time praying. The altar's always open. We haven't put the physical altars back in here yet. We're going to do that here pretty soon. But we do have the steps. And we'd love for you to come and pray at the steps at any time. Whatever your need, we're here for you. I'll be here up front. I'd love to receive you. Could we all stand as we stand? Father, have your way in this invitation, I pray. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.